Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 36 of the History Books and Wine podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I am your host. I am Eliza Knight, USA Today best-selling author of Scottish historical romance with irresistible heroes, courageous heroines, and daring adventure. Under my name, E. Knight, I write rip-your-heart-out historical fiction that crosses landscapes around the world. What will we be discussing today? James VI of Scotland, who also happened to be James I of England, and the witch trials of North Berwick. But first, what am I drinking? Tonight, I am having a glass of Mayomi Pinot Noir. It's my first time drinking this wine, and it is extremely delicious. From the Mayomi website, it says that the Pinot Noir is a rich garnet color with a ruby edge. The wine opens to reveal lifted fruit aromas of bright strawberry and jammy fruit, mocha and vanilla along with toasty oak notes, expressive boysenberry, blackberry, dark cherry, juicy strawberry, and toasty mocha flavors lend complexity and depth on the palate. The well-integrated oak provides structure and depth seldom seen in a Pinot Noir. And a sip? Definitely all of those things. (laughs) It is delicious. So, now on to witches. Have you ever heard of the play Macbeth by Shakespeare? Shakespeare who? Ha ha ha. Yes, you've definitely heard of Shakespeare and probably heard of Macbeth. The most famous lines from Macbeth that most people know are something along the lines of double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Isn't that fun? So anyways, why am I bringing up Macbeth and Shakespeare? Well, because the first line, um, the witch says, But in a sieve, I'll thither sail, and like a rat without a tail, I'll sow, I'll do, I do. Say what? Who cares? Why am I bringing this up? So what did Shakespeare, a sieve, witches, and King James have in common? I will tell you, and that is that this play is a direct nod to the North Berwick witch trials, in which witches claim to have sailed in a sieve. Besides being famous for uniting Scotland and England and his little mention in the Macbeth play, after the death of his aunt Elizabeth I, who named him heir, he was the son of her cousin Mary, Queen of Scots, who she had executed, in case you didn't know that, King James was also famous for having translated the Bible, the King James Version, which is still used today. A little known fact is that he translated the word sorcerer from the original material, which could be a man, to witch, which is the female version of the same thing, basically. Which goes hand in hand about his thoughts regarding women, as some say. But I digress. He also wrote a book about demonology in which he says... The fearful abounding at this time in this country of these detestable slaves of the devil, the witches and enchanters, hath moved me, beloved reader, to dispatch in a post this following treatise of mine. And then he proceeded to write an entire book on demonology because he was now considering himself to be an expert. Very interesting little thing that not very many people know about King James. So let's start talking about his fear of witches. North Berwick is a small seaside town in Scotland, about 20 miles north of Edinburgh. Across from the ocean to the east is Denmark. The witch trials took place in this tiny town in Scotland from about 1590 to 1592. 
in which 70 suspected witches were rounded up and held on trial in this small area. Population of North Berwick now is under 7,000, and I suspect that back uh, several hundred years ago, it would have been a whole lot less as populations tend to increase. Can you imagine this number of people being accused of witchcraft in any tiny town? Like even nowadays, 70 people is a lot of people. So how did all this get started? Well, it started with some weather and weather not necessarily even in Scotland. Not kidding. It was some really bad weather. And I mean, I don't know about you, but when a storm happens on a special day for me, I also blame witches for ruining everything. Okay, just kidding. So a little background. James was not entirely trusting of the female sex, finding them weak and prone to deviousness. Having been ripped away from his mother before he was really even a toddler and raised by men who were only interested in power, King James had very little interaction with women, nor did he seem to trust women specifically. He was often told about his very bad and devious mother, as well as her execution, with some details he probably didn't need to know about, such as her bloodied head. Um, this probably gave him some sort of complex, and certainly could explain his lack of sympathy for women and his suspicions. To give you an idea of what I'm talking about, I shall use his own words, taken from his demonology book, about his experiences with the North Berwick trials. What can be the cause that there are 20 women given to that craft where there is one man? The reason is easy, for as that sex is frailer than man is, so is it easier to be entrapped in those gross snares of the devil, as was over well proved to be true, by the serpent's deceiving of Eve at the beginning, which makes him the homelier of that sex sins? So anyways, his interest in witches began in 1589 in a very inconvenient storm. It just so happened that James was betrothed to Anne of Denmark. She was the daughter of Frederick II, and on her way to Scotland, she was held up by a storm. So James, being the chivalrous groom, decided to fetch her himself. Nearly returned to Scotland, the betrothed couple and their ships came across a tempest storm that overwhelmed the fleet, nearly killing them. As the storm progressed, the Danish admiral declared that the cause of the storm had to be witchcraft. Side note, Denmark at this time was having some witch trials, so that would be why he was thinking witchcraft, of course. The admiral claimed that the tempest was caused by a, the wife of a man he insulted. With no choice but to turn back the way they came, King James and his fleet and his betrothed uh, took refuge in Norway. Having recently undertaken an education about witchcraft and the dangers that were posed by witches, James was convinced that the accusations must be true. Someone was trying to put a stop to his wedding. The Tempest must have been summoned by women. James was determined to bring those who would try to kill him and his new bride to trial. Danish authorities in Copenhagen launched an investigation into the cause of the storm. Because, you know, people cause storms all the time, right? And of course it couldn't have been Mother Nature, or the reason the ships could not withstand the storm would never have been because they were insufficiently built and, and perhaps ill-equipped to deal with such a large storm. No, 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 no! Witches are to blame! Duh! So it was said that the tempest was summoned by witches. One of these witches, Miss Anna Coldings, was accused of being the cause. Under torture, because why else would she admit this, Coldings shared how she and a group of women had gathered and invoked the storm which first delayed the princess's ship to going to her betrothed. She named five other women as accomplices. All the women were arrested in charge and confessed to having summoned demons to climb the keels of the ship. Anna Coldings was found guilty and executed by burning at the stake, along with some of the other women. After this happened, King James decided to begin a witch hunt of his own in Scotland. They could get him in Denmark. What if they were in his own country? So... In 1590, a young serving girl named Galus Duncan, a young healer who lived near Edinburgh, was arrested after being accused of being a witch by her employer. 
If you're thinking this name sounds familiar, it's because you're recognizing it from Diana Gabaldon's book Outlander, in which Galus's name makes an appearance as an accused witch. So why was this young healer accused? Apparently Galus suddenly began to exhibit a miraculous healing ability, and she would sneak out of the house during the night. There could be no other reason for this you know, being a young woman sneaking out in the middle of the night, or, you know, maybe just because she was a healer, she could heal. No, 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 no. When Seton confronted Duncan, she could not explain her new ability or her strange behavior. Wham! Accused. Initially, she denied all the charges because why would she admit to being a witch when she probably wasn't? Initially, she denied all of the charges, including having dealings with the devil himself, but after prolonged torture, just as every other woman who was tortured, and the discovery of a devil's mark on her neck, which was just a bird birthmark, but of course if you had a birthmark you must be in league with the devil, the poor young lass broke down and confessed to being a witch. In his pamphlet regarding these trials, King James wrote of the people that she accused. Agnes Sampson, the oldest witch of them all, dwelling in Haddington. Agnes Thompson of Edinburgh, Dr. Fionn, alias John Cunningham, master of the school at Saltpans in Lothian, of whose life and strange acts you shall hear more largely in the end of this discourse. These were by the said Galus Duncan accused, as also George Mott's wife dwelling in Lothian, Robert Gerson, skipper, and Janet Blandelands with the potter's wife of Seton the smith at Brigahalis, with innumerable others in those parts and dwelling in those bounds aforesaid, of whom some are already executed. The rest remain in prison to receive the doom of judgment at the king's majesty's will and pleasure. The list that she gave under torture. John Fian, a local schoolmaster and alleged coven leader and wizard. Agnes Sampson, respected local midwife and healer. She probably was healing too quickly too. Agnes Thompson of Edinburgh. Barbara Napier, the widow of Earl Archibald Douglas VIII, Earl of Angus. Uh, she was accused of bewitching her husband to death. <laughs> oh, sorry, how do you bewitch your husband to death? Just um, Anyways, Archibald was said to have died of a disease so strange that there was no remedy or cure for it. So that must be how she bewitched him. I was thinking bewitched like, she's so bewitching. Um, anyways, Francis Stewart, first Earl of Bothwell, cousin to the king himself, Euphemia MacLean, daughter of Lord Clifton Hall, with whom she conspired to kill her godfather. George Mott's wife, living at Edinburgh, Janet Blandelance, the potter's wife of Seton, Robert Grierson, a skipper, and the smith at Hollis. So poor Galus was eventually strangled and her body burnt. Because back in those days, apparently witches weren't burned at the stake necessarily. A lot of times they were strangled first and then burnt because the burning is what cleansed the uh, body of the devil. This would, of course, later change. So during the North Berwick trials, a plot against the king was discovered. Apparently, there was a coven of a couple hundred witches who had traveled to St. Andrew's Kirk in North Berwick at night to dance and summon the devil. The witches allegedly began their plot with the use of weather magic, you know, for stalling the Anne's departure from Denmark and then disrupting James' return when he so gallantly went to grab his betrothed. Galus confessed to have met a Danish witch to concoct their plot. How this was possible? Not sure. But she confessed to it anyway, probably under torture. So in any case, all of these confessions seemed so fantastical that King James did not at first believe them. 
So he decided that he would attend the witch trials himself and oversee the torture of these poor women. However, his uh, skepticism was soon proved to be true when the women started to confess and he believed them. And I shall tell you why. The witch Agnes Sampson was brought before him at Holyrood Palace. Agnes beckoned the king closer so she could whisper in his ear in which she revealed some secret details, aka naughty details, of the king. King's wedding night. These are details that should have been impossible for her to know, except for the fact that the wedding night had witnesses, because all royal wedding nights do, just to make sure that it actually happens. Let's forget that convenient point that many had actually witnessed the wedding night and probably talked about it. So Agnes, this could not have been something she learned naturally. She must have learned it from the devil. He told her because she's a witch. Why would Agnes try to convince the king that she was indeed guilty, probably because she was being severely tortured and was ready for it all to end. Having initially denied these accusations, she confessed to everything once her ordeal in the dungeon became too much. How she was able to even last as long as she did is a mystery to me. Allegedly, she had all the hair shaved from her body and was forced to stand naked, fixed against a wall with a witch's bridle or a scold's bridle. I talked about this a couple podcasts ago during our month of torture. This device, uh, again, was an iron muzzle in an iron framework, which enclosed the head. There would be sharp prongs that were forced into the mouth around the palate and the tongue, so that if you spoke, you would basically pierce your tongue or the palate of your mouth. Apparently, she stood like this for days, naked and pinned to the wall with this scold's bridle or witch's bridle. No food, no sleep. If she started to fall, she be pierced. So Agnes, despite that, was not easily broken. The jailers and the king, frustrated with her resilience because how dare she be able to last that long, she must be channeling the devil somehow or using her witch's power and sorcery to keep herself from being hurt, or more hurt, I should say. So they decided they needed to increase the level of torture, in which case they decided to use a garret. I'm not sure if we discussed a garret during our month of torture, but essentially what it is is a rope that is tied around your neck, and then a stick is at the back that is then twisted to tighten around your neck, uh, causing slow strangulation. Within an hour of having this noose placed around her neck and tightened, Agnes confessed to all 53 indictments against her, the chief of which was treason and consorting with the devil with witchcraft. She was taken to the scaffold on Castle Hill where she was continued to be garroted, which was the strangulation, most likely died by the strangulation and then was burnt at the stake. It is said that she still haunts Holyrood Palace this day. And I say, you go girl and continue to haunt King James because the guy was horrible. So poor Agnes was not the only woman tortured. As I mentioned earlier, I think there were at least 70 women and men, some men accused of being involved in witchcraft. So what are some of the other horrific means used to torture those in the North Berwick trials? Aside from the witch's bridal, there was the breast ripper, which we briefly mentioned in our happy hour in September. And yes, it is exactly what it sounds like horrible. I don't even want to go there. There was also something called pricking, and they were pricked repeatedly with needles to see if they felt pain or would bleed. There was also the boots method, which does not sound very nice, and essentially a device was used to crush a victim's feet, disabling them permanently. Another means was sleep deprivation, which they would use to keep the accused from falling asleep. There was many ways to keep someone awake, one of which I also discussed in my previous Month of Torture podcast, and I prefer not to speak on it again. It was awful and horrible, and 
gives me the shivers just thinking about it. So if you really want to know what that one was, it was Judas's Cradle. Go ahead and listen to my podcast, a couple podcasts back to find more about that. In any case, sleep deprivation was an effective means of torture. And the natural results from lack of sleep played into the hands of the torturer. Have you ever heard the phrase that three days of no sleep makes you legally insane? Well, what happens when you have no sleep for days and days and days and your brain starts to go insane is basically that it starts to shut down. In other words, you would hallucinate, you talk nonsense, and all of that, you know, stuff would make the accuser believe that the individual was simply a witch invoking their magic or speaking in the devil's tongue. Some of the confessions given under torture from the North Berwick trials included the following. Sailing up the Firth of Forth in a sieve to St. Andrew's Kirk in North Berwick for gatherings and dancing with the devil. Dancing with the devil anywhere. Digging up corpses from St. Andrew's Kirkyard, dismembering them tying the limbs to christened dead cats and then throwing them into the sea to conjure up a storm which would kill the king. This seems extreme. Moving on. Another thing that people confessed to was collecting venom from a black toad to be used to poison the king. The North Berwick trials were supposedly the first major witch hunt in Scotland. Thanks, King James. Not... So some 70 people were accused during the North Berwick trials, and it is unknown how many exactly were executed. It's likely that there were several, at least, who died from the torture. So though this may have been the first major witch hunt, it was certainly not the last, and approximately somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000 people would be accused of witchcraft in Scotland in the coming years, and about half of those at least were executed. So not a lot of fun. Sounds horrible. Glad that today we can kind of know the difference between these things. Just saying. Let's move on to something exciting. Or not necessarily. Well, okay, I take that back. Witchcraft is exciting and I love all the history and lore behind it. It's kind of fun. But let's talk about something that's more happy, I guess. Okay, what am I reading this month? City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert. Life is both fleeting and dangerous and there is no point in denying yourself pleasure or being anything other than what you are. Beloved author Elizabeth Gilbert returns to fiction with a unique love story set in New York City theater world during the 1940s. Told from the perspective of an older woman as she looks back on her youth with both pleasure and regret, but mostly pleasure, City of Girls explores themes of female sexuality and promiscuity, as well as the idiosyncrasies of true love. In 1940, 19-year-old Vivian Morris has just been kicked out of Vassar College owing to her lackluster freshman year performance. Her affluent parents send her to Manhattan to live with her Aunt Peg, who owns a flamboyant, crumbling midtown theater called the Lily Playhouse. There, Vivian is introduced to an entire cosmos of unconventional and charismatic characters, from the fun-chasing showgirls to a sexy male actor, a grand dame actress, a lady killer writer, and a no-nonsense stage manager. But when Vivian makes a personal mistake that results in professional scandal, it turns her new world upside down in ways that will take her years to fully understand. Ultimately, though, it leads her to a new understanding of the kind of life she craves and the kind of freedom it takes to pursue it. It will also lead to the love of her life, a love that stands out from all the rest. Now 89 years old and telling her story at last, Vivian recalls how the events of those years altered the course of her life and the gusto and autonomy with which she approached it. At some point in a woman's life, she just gets tired of being ashamed all the time, she muses. After that, she is free to become whoever she truly is. Written with a powerful wisdom about human desire and connection, City of Girls is a love story like no other. I'm about halfway through the book and I really am enjoying it. It's 
it's very unique and it's got a format that um, I find to be very interesting in that the story is told through a letter to the main character's granddaughter. So a book of mine, which is uh, Ribbons of Scarlet. Uh, It was released a few weeks ago. This is a breathtaking epic novel illuminating the hopes, desires, and destinies of princesses, peasants, harlots, and wives, fanatics, and philosophers. Seven unforgettable women whose paths crossed during one of the most tumultuous and transformative events in history, the French Revolution. Ribbons of Scarlet is a timely story of the power of women to start a revolution and change the world. In late 18th century France, women do not have a place in politics, but as the tide of the revolution rises, women from gilded salons to the streets of Paris decide otherwise, upending a world order that has long oppressed them. Blue-blooded Sophie de Grouchy believes in democracy, education, and equal rights for women, and she marries the only man in Paris who agrees. Emboldened to fight the injustices of King Louis XVI, Sophie aims to prove that an educated populace can govern itself. But one of her students, fruit seller Louise Odu, is hungrier for bread and vengeance than learning. When the Bastille falls and Louise leads a women's march to Versailles, the monarchy is forced to bend, but not without a fight. The king's pious sister, Princess Elizabeth, takes a stand to defend her brother, spirit her family to safety, and restore the old order, even at the risk of her head. But when fanatics use the newspapers to twist the revolution's ideals into a new tyranny, even the women who toppled the monarchy are threatened by the guillotine. Putting her faith in her pen, brilliant political wife Manon Roland tries to write a way out of France's blood-soaked reign of terror, while pike-bearing Pauline Lyon and steely Charlotte Coday embrace violence as the only way to save the nation. With justice corrupted by revenge, all the women must make impossible choices to survive. Unless unlikely heroine and courtesan's daughter, Emily de Saint-Amorant, can sway the man who controls France's fate, the fearsome Robespierre. So, that's it for this week, everyone. I'll have any show notes for today's episode listed on our website, historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com, and they can also be found on iTunes with our podcast. We are now on Spotify, Google, and Alexa. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. And remember, you can always send questions at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about some of these fun historical tidbits I've shared with you about the North Berwick trials. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out new episodes published every other week on Thursdays. Next up is our happy hour, which is November 21st, where we'll be continuing our discussion of witches. If you haven't listened to the past two podcasts, Madeline and Lori already shared their witch trials with the listeners. So go ahead and be sure to listen to those too. Make sure you subscribe to get up-to-date notifications about our next episode. Have a great week.